Our God of grace, gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us now as we look at this passage that was read for us. Um, Lord, it's a wonderful passage, and we pray that in your mercy you would make it wonderful to each of us today. Please use your word to bring your life to us, we ask. Amen. Love. Love. What is it that comes to mind when you think of love? Uh, Where would you see love? And when you see it, what is it that you would see? Back in 1992, the Manic Street Preachers sang wonderfully, There is no real love, just a finely tuned jealousy. Life becoming a landslide, a mile empty inside. There's no real love, a very dark view on love. Then a little bit more hopefully, perhaps in 2003, the Black Eyed Peas sang, Where is the love? And they considered a world that was broken and they reflected on it in their song, but they were more hopeful because they sang, Father, Father, help us, send some guidance from above. Love, what is it? And where is it? Now, is the idea of love just kind of so abused that it's been emptied of meaning? Or or is it just so absent that we don't know where to look for it? Maybe, maybe not. But at least we should be careful when we think and talk about love. Now, we've been working through John's first letter. um, And among all the New Testament writers, John is the one who speaks most about love. And what we've seen so far is that uh, John is writing to a group of churches who are confused um, by deceptive teaching. And he writes to them, he says in chapter 513, right at the end, he says, I'm writing because I want you to be confident in what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus. He wants them to know that they are set on the right track. Uh, Last week, uh, Paul helped us to see the crisis in these churches uh, with his title, Watch Out, Scammers About. There are people peddling different messages, and, uh, and John wants to put his readers on guard. You see that if you just look down to verse 26 of chapter 2. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, verse 27, as for you, remain in him. And we pick up this morning with that appeal in verse 28. Our passage begins, and now, dear children, continue in him. It's the same word as remain. Stick to Jesus. Abide in him. Uh, And John begins to build on this plea in our passage, which is pretty dense. It's pretty closely argued. Um, But but in in this passage, there is, well, there's a lot going on. And one of the things that's going on is there is something of a framework in this passage, a kind of narrative framework. And let let me just show you how that works. Uh, If you've got your Bibles open, glance on verse 28 of chapter 2. In that verse, he writes, when he appears... He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 2. When Christ appears. And glance down to chapter 3, verse 5. He says there, he appeared. And then chapter 3, verse 8. He says, the Son of God appeared. So in our passage, we have these four times that John talks about Christ appearing. The first two are about a future appearing. Christ is going to return. Uh, The second two are about Christ's past appearing. Christ has already come. Christ has come, Christ will come again. That, that's the kind of the narrative that John draws out in our passage, these two appearings of Christ, one in the past, one in the future. And, and onto that frame, John builds up this urgent call to stick with Jesus. 
Dear children, continue in him, remain in him, abide in him. So as we look at this passage, we're going to kind of pull out that framework and then see how it supports the appeal to abide in Christ. Uh, Let's think about what John writes. Christ appeared. That's how John starts the letter. He starts by declaring that Christ appeared, that life itself came. And John says, we saw him and we touched him and we heard him. Christ appeared. Well, Well, now he begins, I think, to expand on that a little bit. As he talks about this past appearing of Christ in our passage, he's telling us that Christ's entrance was an entrance into a story. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He appeared so that he might take away sins. Chapter 3, verse 8, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. See, Christ appearing was an entrance into a story, entering into a world of sin, entering into a world where there is a a personal and evil agent named the devil, uh, one who has been operative right from the beginning in opposing all the goodness of God. Uh, In a sense, John takes us all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 3, all the way back to that wonderful creation where God lavished an abundance of goodness on everything and then Into it slithered the poison of lies and deception. Humanity doubted the goodness of God, lusted for their own power, and uh, original love got twisted, and goodness crumbled. And and from that point on, the beauty of God's creation was shattered, and the fracture lines opened up over all the generations. And as we look back over history now, we see it marred by pain and wickedness, people trampling on one another and everyone just careering towards death. The work of the devil was a mighty and a devastating work. John tells us Christ appeared into that story. Tells us how the Son of God left all the the perfections of heaven and submerged himself into our broken humanity. In verse 5 it says, in him is no sin. But he came right into our world of sin. And his purpose in coming into this story was to change the story. See, right back in the beginning, when, when God confronted the devil and cursed it, he cursed the snake and he promised there in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your, the serpent's head, and you will strike his heel. And right from then, humanity looked for the coming of the serpent crusher. Humanity looked for the appearing of the one who was born of the woman. One who would crush the serpent's head and destroy those works of the devil. And in time it happened. In time the Son of God became the Son of Man, born of the Virgin Mary, the offspring of the woman who came into the world to take away sins. And and he did it, as John's already told us at the beginning of chapter 2. He did it, Jesus Christ did it by being the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He came into the world to take away sins by offering himself. Offering his perfect, flawless self as a sacrifice for our brokenness and our sins. And when that sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice is applied to sinners, when that happens, the power of the evil one is broken. Because the only claim he has is that death must follow sin. But when the sinless one died for sinners, that claim is answered. And then forgiveness and eternal life flows from the wounds of the Lord Jesus. He appeared, John says. He appeared and 
and through his death and his resurrection, he has changed the story forever. Uh, But John also shows how this appearing, past appearing, is a divisive appearing. He shows how Christ's appearing reveals that all people belong to two families. He builds up the picture in verses 4 to 10. He he uses in verses 4 to 10 a series of statements, all beginning with all who or everyone who. I'll I'll put them on the screen so we can see them all together. Uh, Down the left-hand side, we have verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Verse 6. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Verse 10. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. And then we have the other family described on the right-hand side, verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7. The one who does what is right is righteous. Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue in sin. What's John getting at with that? Well, he summarizes it in verse 10. He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. There are two family lines. In fact, these are the two family lines that have been there right since Genesis 3, right since God spoke about the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman. Right from that point, humanity has been divided. And we know John is getting at this because in verse 9, he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. Uh, That word seed is the same as the word offspring in Genesis 3, that the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman gets picked up in the Bible storyline, going through Abraham, where we learn about the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, into whose family line was born eventually the Christ. What are we being told about the children of God here? We're being told pretty clearly, they do not sin, aren't we? In fact, verse 6 literally says, All who remain in him are not sinning. Verse 9, literally again, all who have been born of God are not sinning. They do not sin. They don't do unrighteousness. They do righteousness. And then the flip side, the children of the devil, what are we told of them? We're told they do sin. That they do not do righteousness. Now at this point, please tell me that you find that troubling. Now that is difficult, isn't it? No, we can't sit easy when the Bible says stuff like that to us. All of us belong to one group or the other, and John says the dividing line is whether you sin or whether you don't sin. That's difficult. What's he getting at? It's so important we read our Bibles in context. In our passage, even in in verse 3, it speaks about a process of purification. That, That is, those who do not sin are not yet perfect. And yet chapter 1, John has put it much more clearly. In chapter 1, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And then he says we need to confess our sin. And we need to seek forgiveness for our sin because sin remains in all of us. So so now then, in chapter 3, what does John mean when he says the one who does what is sinful is of the devil? Well, we'll look at verse 4. In a kind of very kind of wooden translation of verse 4, it would say, All who do the sin also do the lawlessness, and the sin is the lawlessness. Uh, Last week we saw that uh, the times between Christ's two comings 
are described in the Bible as times when there will be fierce opposition to Christ and his people. There will be antichrists. And this opposition, the Bible tells us, is characterized by something called lawlessness. The prophet Daniel foretold it. Jesus himself spoke about it. The apostle Paul wrote about this lawlessness. And this lawlessness describes a world that rejects Christ. And at the heart of this lawlessness is the hatred of being under God's authority. You see, a a right relationship with God, our maker, a right relationship is founded on accepting that he has the right to, to define what is good and what is bad. He has the right to define what is right and what is wrong, and we submit to him. And we aren't free to judge him. He is free to judge us, and we're under his law. But the world rejects that lawfulness and is characterized by lawlessness. Uh, John says that is the kind of sin that he's speaking of. That is the sin. It is the lawlessness. And, And you might say, but is there any other type of sin? Surely all sin is like that. Well, there is another type of sin. See, there is a kind of sin that is confessed as sin. And it's brought to Christ to be cleansed by his blood. And so the Christian may sin, but when the child of God sins, they agree with God that it is sin. And they confess. And they seek to turn from it. Uh, But the child of God cannot do the sin of lawlessness, because that means not to confess sin. And so not to be forgiven. See, in verse 6, he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That is, again, that same word for abiding and remaining. No one who remains in him. Doing sin is the opposite of abiding in Christ. Doing sin is the the rejecting of the message about who Jesus is and what he's done and refusing to acknowledge that and so to turn. As John describes these two family lines, he's painting a picture of what it looks like to accept or to reject Christ. He's describing the outworking, the outliving of of faith or deception. Humanity is divided into these two families. It's divided into these two families, but it's not based on biological descent. The offspring of the snake and the woman don't work like that. The dividing line is on how people respond to the appearing of the Son of God to take away sin. So the framework of our passage tells about these appearings of Christ. Verses 4 to 10 look back on his first appearing, back into his appearing into this world of sin in order to change the story. The first part of our passage, though, chapter 228 to 33, look forward to Christ's second appearing. Christ has appeared, but Christ will appear. Imagine with me you're reading, um, you're reading a novel, and you're really, really into it. And when, when my, my son Daniel was born, um, I was at Bible college, and being very studious at Bible college with a group of friends, we got hooked upon the, um, the Hunger Games series of novels, teen novels, uh, absolutely gripped by them. And, and Nikki and I, my wife, we'd, we'd fight over who got to look after the baby, because looking after the baby meant I could hold him in one hand and read the book in the other, desperate to know what was going to happen next. Now imagine if you're into a novel like that and you lose it. You you lose it. You can't find out what happened. People probably have nightmares about that kind of thing, don't they? Not getting to the end of the story. Well, you know what? In history, you might not have noticed, but we are not yet at the end of the story. Christ appeared. That's happened. He appeared to take away sin. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. But the world is still sin-filled and the works of the devil still wreak havoc everywhere. 
and yet Christ will come again. In fact, John says, he said it in chapter 2.18, this is the last hour. And that's Bible talk for saying the next thing on God's agenda is that Christ will come again. So our passage begins, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed. Christ is going to come again. And yet I reckon that the, that the idea, the thought of Christ's return is pretty alien to our thinking. And we get pressed into the mold of a world that has no real functional appreciation of anything higher than the ceiling. And we live every day as if this life and this world is all that there is. It's strange to think that it won't always be like that. It's even more strange to think that the idea of Jesus' return is deeply threatening. But it is. Verse 28 suggests the possibility of shame at his appearing. And and later on in the letter, in chapter 417, he will speak about his appearing being marked as the day of judgment. A a day when when we'll be exposed before God without excuse. You, You see, the appearing of Christ at the second time is when he will wrap up this part of the story. The story written from Genesis 3, it will come to completion. So he says in 3 verse 2, now we are the children of God and yet the full import of that transformation is not yet upon us. We still carry about our fallen nature. What we will be, he says, has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. When Christ appears, he will complete what he has started. When Christ appears, a whole new story will begin. Or as C.S. Lewis brilliantly depicts it in his story, The Last Battle, and writes... All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Christ will come again. Christ has come. Christ will come again. So what? So what? Well, in this passage, John describes these two appearings of Christ and he uses that to build up his urgent call. Continue in him. Stick with Jesus. Abide in him. Now, we've seen this in John's letter before. We will see it again. It's it's the heartbeat. The, the, The longing of John as he writes to these people is that they abide in Christ. He talks about it in a number of ways. Now, this abiding in Christ includes sticking to the message about Christ in chapter 2.24. It includes living in the ways of Christ, chapter 3, verse 6. And yet essential to it is that abiding in him is relationship. It is the fellowship with God that John began the letter with. You see, when, when John writes, abide in him, he, he's saying it to this, the whole group that he's writing to, the whole community. He's urging them together to believe the message about Jesus, to behave like Jesus, and to enjoy the presence of Jesus. John keeps coming back to this. It's a repeated note. Stick with Jesus. Do you feel any importance in that? Stick with Jesus. Is there anything in your heart that leans towards it? Now, why stick with Jesus? Well, look at what he says. Verse 28, continue in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 
What, what's he getting at with that? <clears throat> we'll see verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And, and at that point, I think John could go straight to verse 4 of chapter 3. He's, but there's something about verse 29 where he's kind of lit a stick of dynamite that explodes as he moves into verse 1. See, he says, what great love the Father has lavished on us. That mention of being born again ignites this outburst of wonder as he moves into chapter 3. And I think with that, John shows how we can abide in Christ. Now, now, I don't know if this is what happened, but I can imagine as John was writing this part of this letter, he, he starts writing, he's writing, okay, I want them to, to continue, abide in Christ. And so I'm going to explain about these two family lines, about those who have been born of him. And he writes and he thinks, that's it. This is how I can encourage these people to abide in Christ. Here's the answer, chapter 3, verse 1. See, look at it. Fill your gaze with this staggering reality. See what great love. That is, see how wonderful is the sort of love the Father has lavished on us. What is it that we should be called children of God? And I think as John says that, he gives us three wonderful sights of this love. Three overlapping sights that we can fix our gaze upon and we can study as we seek to abide in Christ. Let's look, as John tells us to. Look. This love brings new birth. Might, the message about Christ is massive. And it must be. Must be. Now don't we feel the futility of this world? And don't we look at the mindless nonsense all around us and then we just buy into it? And don't we feel the weakness? And we hear the reports about our friends in Myanmar and don't we weep at it? at the brutality and the wickedness. And then we face our own bodily frailty. And all the time, society rages on without any reference to the living God. And, and then for ourselves, even in our own souls, even those of us who believe, don't we feel that disconnect? Don't we feel that at best our sight is dim and our old nature can seem so strong? It's the world we live in. It's been like that since the beginning. So what kind of rescue is warranted by the depth of this ruin? And nothing that's a, there's no patch-up job. We don't need a little bit of something added on to the side. Something massive and colossal is needed. Well, how about what John writes here? Look at the working of God's love. Look at this great love lavished that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John says, don't look at a love that's over there. Look at a love that has been put upon you. You see, that this new birth that he talks about, this is a, a binding of our lives into the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the life that has appeared and we are born of him. And so that means that now our existence is bound up with the one who takes away sin. See, this, this new birth is to have our lives bound up to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the life of Christ who has the power to restore what was lost to sin and, and has the power to heal all the brokenness. You see, in our new birth, we belong to the one who destroys the devil's work. Think about that. You see, if when we get to the end, there is any remaining stain of the devil's work left, Christ has not done his job. 
But Christ will do his job. He will do it perfectly and wonderfully and everything broken will be made new, including you. We will be made new because we have been born again in Christ. And then that means that when he appears, when we stand before him on that day of judgment and the secret, every secret of our heart is exposed before the white hot purity of God Almighty. When we stand before him and every sin is called to account, when we stand before him in the place when sinners should only tremble and despair, when he appears, we will be confident and fearless. And when he appears, we will not be ashamed. We'll have no shame. Any sense of our personal worthlessness, any sense of our own hideousness, it will melt away with the deepest realization in every atom of our being that we are dearly loved children of God who belong with him in joy-filled fellowship forever and ever and ever. So will you look and will you see? Look how wonderful is this love that our Father has lavished on us. Brings new birth. second sight this love brings new family you know in in an ideal world I think in an ideal world we could ask how do children know the love of their parents and the answer would be in a perfect world children know the love of their parents simply for the fact that they are that they exist children are the fruit of a parent's love and yet we're not in a perfect world are we the sad reality is that that is so far from what often happens. John knew all about that. Now, when, when, when John wrote his letter, he wrote into a society where children were abused and unwanted and disposed of. Literally, children were sacrificed. So, so when John says, look at this wonderful love, it's the love of a father. For many, that's going to be problematic. And, and yet, look at what John writes next in verse 1. He writes... The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, the world is a broken mirror. It can only hold a distorted image of what this love is like. And and also, John says, we are called children of God, but the world doesn't know it. The world will not call us what we are. You see the problem? Now, John says, look at this great love that we're called the children of God. Look at it, but the world will confuse us because it doesn't see it. And the world will numb us so that we don't see it. And so when John says, see this wonderful love, he doesn't say, sit by yourself and see it. He says, we are called children of God. That is what we are. We we, we tend to think so much kind of in an individualistic type way, we think about ourselves. And so we hear, we are God's children, and we think that's about me sitting by myself in my personal relationship with the Lord. Or we think, it's about everybody else, and it's not about me. But John says, we are. All who believe on Jesus, and there are no exceptions, and there are no distinctions, and there's no hierarchy, and there's no ranking. We are together the children of God. It's what we are. It's what we're called. The world doesn't call us that. If the world doesn't call us it, then who will? Who will call us and tell us and remind us and show us that we are God's children? Now, one of the ways that we see this love is that we keep telling each other about it. We fill our conversations and our actions with reminders that we are lavished with the Father's love. We are his children. Look at it. 
See how wonderful is this love that our Father has lavished on us, this love that brings new family. And then a third sight. Look, this love brings new nature. No, the story of this world hasn't yet reached its end, has it? The first chapter of the new world awaits to be read. In verse 2 he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The future of God's children is gloriously bright. There's so much that we don't know, so much that we can't yet know because our minds are too feeble and our vision is too dim. But when Christ appears, we will see him as he is. You see, now at the moment, our thoughts of Christ, they're so pale and they're so distracted and they're so clouded. But then when Christ appears, when he comes, we will see crystal clear. You see, now at the moment, we have just a, just a fleeting glance. We have just this brief kind of whiff. But then, then we will sit at the feast and we will fill our bellies. We will see him as he is. The astonishing excellence of all of his beautiful grace. We will see him and our longing will be satisfied. And did you hear? We shall be like him. Now, when we see him, when we see him, then the might of his glory will change us. It would be like being, um, like, like kind of being exposed to the most glorious kind of radiation that has such power that every part of our being will be infused with his life. And the old will be gone and the new will be there. And then we shall see him as he is. And our vision will no longer be clouded and no longer be distorted, but it will be bright and fixed fully on the endless glories of Christ. We will see him and because we see him, we will be transformed. We will be transformed. But notice this. Notice that the transformation begins now. See, John says, when Christ appears, we will see him. It is the seeing that is the engine of transformation. But what do we do now? We'll look at verse 1. What does he say? See. We start the seeing now. And what do we see now? Well, we see the love of the Father. He's made us his children. And this love of the Father, this love of the Father is Christ Jesus, his Son. This love that is lavished on us, it is Christ given for our sins and raised for our life. This love is Christ coming for us, wrapping us in himself so that we share in his sonship. And now we see so dimly. But every sight we have, however dim, is a transforming sight as we head towards his great coming. He says in verse 3, all who have this hope, this wonderful hope, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now you might wonder, you might well probably be a good question to be asking yourself, how do I know that I've seen this love? How do we know that we have seen this love? Well, it's not by having a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not by some growth in theological understanding. If you have seen this love, as much as you have seen it, you will strive for purity. See, if somebody goes around claiming that they know the love of God, but they've made peace with their own sin, they do not know the love of God. 
And yet when our seeing of God's love grows within us a dissatisfaction for the sin that we find, and when our seeing of the love of God drives us to discover more of the sin in our lives so that we might confess it more and receive forgiveness and turn away from it, then we show that we are God's children. And so will you look? Will you see? Will you see how wonderful is the sort of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? Will you look? Will you look? And then when you are weary of looking, we're so easily wearied, aren't we? Tragically easily. When we're weary, why don't we look together? And meditate together on this love. Contemplate it and let the, let the hope that it brings burn away every last part of our old selves and drive us to be like Jesus. Let's look. And look together. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? So we can look together at the love of the Father lavished on us in the Lord Jesus. That's why we need to keep being here. So we can look together. Now what does it mean for us to be called children of God? What does it mean? It means we've been written into this astonishing cosmic story. It means that we have a glorious, glorious future. And it means that it starts right now. So dear children, continue in him. Let's just take a moment of quiet and then we'll pray. Our Father in heaven, please, please will you help us to see and to see and to keep on seeing more and more of the wonderful love that you have for us. That we might be called your children. And that is what we are. 